0: In the late 1940s, Puerto Rico was at a crossroads. For almost 50 years, it had been a colony of the United States. But with colonial subjects in Asia and Africa throwing off their European rulers, many Puerto Ricans were looking forward to a new status for their island as well. Some wanted statehood, others more autonomy. Some demanded outright independence. Throughout the 1930s, the radical wing of the independence faction, known as the Nationalist Party, violently clashed with the colonial regime in Puerto Rico. In 1936, that party's leader, a man named Pedro Albizu Campos, was imprisoned by American authorities for sedition. Our next story picks up 10 years later, when Albizu Campos was released and his followers saw one last chance to shape Puerto Rico's future— through a devastating act of political violence. Here is producer Nina Ernest with that story.
1: When Pedro Albizu Campos was released from prison in 1947, he picked up right where he had left off, giving fiery speeches in support of independence. (laughs) But Puerto Rico had changed in his 10-year absence. When he first rose to prominence in the 20s and 30s, support for independence was at an all-time high. Now, many political leaders were turning toward a new model, one that meant more autonomy for Puerto Rico, with continued oversight by the United States. It was a path favored by a savvy politician named Luis Munoz Marín, who recognized that Puerto Rico's contributions to the Allied war effort had given it leverage to negotiate a more favorable status with the U.S., He was at that very moment on the verge of becoming the island's first democratically elected governor. And in the summer of 1950, the U.S. Congress did pass a law allowing Puerto Ricans to vote on a new constitution, one that would eventually cement the new Commonwealth status.
0: There's no way Puerto Ricans are not going to move toward ratifying uh, the constitution that is going to be presented to Congress.
1: This is Harry Frankie Rivera, a historian at Hunter College in New York. He says Albizu Campos regarded the Constitution as another form of colonialism, but also realized that the political winds had turned against him.
0: He realized that he wasn't a relevant figure anymore politically. So he had to, if he wanted to determine the future of Puerto Rico, which is something that he wanted, he wanted to determine the future of Puerto Rico, he had to do something drastic.
1: His desperation was fueled by a repressive gag law that had gone into effect months after he had returned from prison. Many scholars believe it was created to keep the nationalists in line. It prohibited writing, discussing, even singing about an independent Puerto Rico, or from displaying a Puerto Rican flag. Albizu Campos decided that the only way to win Puerto Rico's independence was to fight for it. He and the nationalists planned a revolt. Nelson Dennis is the author of a forthcoming book about this rebellion.
0: What they planned to do was to have an island-wide set of, of actions where they assaulted the police precincts to hopefully get some weapons, which they didn't have many of. And then they would retreat to the central town of Utuado, which was nestled in a ring of mountains, pretty much in the center of Puerto Rico. And they were hoping to hold out for about two weeks.
1: Now, the hope here wasn't to win a military victory. The nationalists were a small force, and they knew it.
0: It's important to to emphasize that Albizu Campos and the nationalists knew that militarily it was ridiculous to attempt to confront the United States, the most powerful country in, in the world. What they needed to do, and they needed to do it with some urgency, was to get world attention and specifically the UN decolonization committee to focus on what they considered the colonial situation in Puerto Rico.
1: In this era of decolonization, the newly formed United Nations had a special committee to help that process along. The nationalists wanted their help. And so, on October 30th, 1950, nationalists assaulted police precincts in seven towns. They stormed Governor Munoz Marín's mansion, La Fortaleza, in San Juan. In one town, Hayuya, nationalists even managed to lift the Puerto Rican flag, in defiance of the gag law, and declare for the Free Republic of Puerto Rico. The countermeasures were swift. President Harry Truman declared martial law. Munoz Marin called in the U.S.-trained Puerto Rican National Guard. And most striking of all, those National Guardsmen bombed the towns of Jaiuya and Utuado. It was the only time, says Nelson Dennis, that the U.S. military carried out a bombing campaign against its own citizens.
0: So that's how the United States dealt with it very quickly. 5,000 National Guardsmen, a bombing of two towns, and a clampdown on any media attention to it. President Truman tried to dismiss everything, the revolution that happened in 1950, as, quote-unquote, an incident between Puerto Ricans. But that didn't seem all that credible when two of those Puerto Ricans showed up in Blair House and tried to assassinate him. Outside Blair House, the president's temporary Washington home, extreme fanatics of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party try to force their way in, guns blazing to assassinate the president of the United States. When the three-minute shooting is over, assassin Griselio Torresola lies dead on the Blair House lawn, and White House policeman Leslie Kofeld is dying a few feet away.
1: The assassination attempt took place on November 1st. By the following day, Puerto Rican forces had the revolt under control. In the end, 28 people had been killed, most of them nationalists. Between one and 2,000 Puerto Ricans were arrested, including Pedro Albizu Campos. And once again, the revolutionary went back to prison. He would spend yet another decade of his life there. A few months after the revolt, 76 percent of Puerto Ricans voted in favor of drafting a new constitution that would grant them some autonomy under the Commonwealth status. Since Puerto Rico was soon to be ostensibly in Puerto Rican hands, the United Nations would no longer consider the island a colony that demanded its attention.
0: At that point, it was like game, set, match. It's like, hey, the game's over, everybody take your models and go home. There's nothing more to say.
1: Despite his failure in 1950, Pedro Albizu Campos has not been forgotten. To the contrary, he is still widely revered. Nelson Dennis is among many, especially in the Puerto Rican diaspora, who admire him for standing up to the U.S. when the odds were stacked against him.
0: Even though he didn't win that military battle, he won, in my view, the moral victory, the moral battle of showing the world what is right. And what should be.
1: Harry Frankie Rivera is less laudatory. He sees Albizu Campos as something of a conservative, cultish figure whose followers had a nostalgic vision of a Puerto Rican nation that harkened back to a time before U.S. rule.
0: They were completely defeated and discredited philosophically. Muñoz Marin is offering a peaceful path towards modernity, to create a new Puerto Rico, a new Puerto Rican. And what the nationalists are offering is going uh, back in the past.
1: As for the legacy of the 1950 revolt, Frankie Rivera says the territorial government's swift response to it showed Congress that Puerto Ricans could govern themselves. And it demonstrated to Puerto Rican voters that Munoz Marín was an effective leader. So perhaps Albizu Campos did help shape the future of Puerto Rico, just not in the way he would have liked.
0: Producer Nina Ernest. Helping her tell that story was Harry Frankie Rivera from the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College and Nelson Dennis. He's the author of War Against All Puerto Ricans, Revolution and Terror in America's Colony.